Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. LGBT thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery with your hosts Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And today we have a great guest. We are talking with the author of The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders, Ari Robinoff. Thank you for being here. Thank you guys for having me. What was behind you? deciding to actually write this book? Sure. I had this privileged position where I got to travel around the country and be by Bernie Sanders' side as deputy chief of staff in his Senate office as legislative director and ultimately deputy campaign manager on his 2020 campaign for nearly four years. And Bernie is one of you know the most famous and important politicians in America, if not the world, and known everywhere. But very few people get the chance to see who he really is. And in fact, in some ways, he resists that, thinking it's, you know, he's all about the issues and the personal details, who he really is, that's gossip. And the goal of this book was to, there is, to open up kind of some light on who this seminal and important person is at a really important time in his history and the history of America. Yeah, and I one thing I really liked, um, Ari, was your decision in the book to make it about him. It's almost like a nonfiction character study. And you say early on, like, this is not a book to push for policy points or to push an agenda. It's more about understanding him. And I was curious what was specifically behind the decision to take it in that direction. Um, I, I just think, first off, I think the problem is campaign books can be really boring when they get into palace intrigue because uh especially if you don't own the palace um Mm -hmm. 
And I just think he's the character and I wanted to really focus on him and make it about him and, and what, what he was doing. And I think he is, I think he's the person that's fascinating to people. I'm a pretty boring person, to be honest. I think (laughs) he's interesting. Um, And I think there's just moments that you see with him that you might've followed the campaign, but this will take you into moments that you've never seen. For example, you know, we're backstage before the second debate in Detroit and, you know, millions, tens of millions of Americans have seen the second uh, presidential debate of this cycle in Detroit, right? Where all the democratic candidates were on stage together, but in the green room before he's sitting there looking dour, um, not really, um, not really seeming up for this moment. And at the same time, John Delaney, who's another candidate sends out a press release just bashing him, saying, you know, like, basically, I'm going to go on stage and call Bernie a communist and say he's bad for America. And only Faz Shakir, the campaign manager, are in the green room with him. And uh, and we get a text from one of our colleagues, Jeff Weaver, saying, read him the press release. So we read him the release, and he, he looks at us and says, do you know that, you know that song from the 19, the Charlie Brown song? Why is everybody always picking on me? And Faz starts playing it on his phone and Bernie gets up and starts dancing around the green room, literally, which is this tiny, tiny room in this old Detroit theater, starts dancing around the green room, shadow boxing. And like this moment where he pumps himself up, there are moments like that, that first off, I don't think people see Bernie as someone who will get up and dance to a song by the coasters, which really takes him to his childhood. Um, but second, like it, it's those moments that you don't see on the campaign that had a huge impact because he went out on stage. He went from completely down to completely energized, went out on stage and kind of ripped apart everybody. It was a, it was a great debate. Was there a particular moment in time, like you're talking about these key moments where it actually dawned on you, like, holy moly, I have got to write a book capturing this guy's personality. Was it, can you pin it to one, one incident? No, it was very much after the campaign, which this, you know, I've been on campaigns that have won. I've been on campaigns that have lost. This campaign, when you're a staff member, you're on a campaign that loses. In many ways, it's like the end of, of your world. You've been completely absorbed in this one thing for an extended period of time, and you kind of know nothing else, and you sacrifice everything else. Um, and you're just totally absorbed in this one moment. And then suddenly it ends and all the people, you know, all of a sudden, all the people you worked with forever all go away, right? You all split off to the winds. In this case, not only did the campaign end, but in a way the world was ending. We were in the midst of, you know, COVID beginning. We were all kind of locked down as the campaign ends. Most of the time when a campaign ends, you all go to the bar, you get drunk for a few days, you commiserate, you reminisce, and you start looking for jobs. In this case, you know, the world is just shutting down. And it was in those moments where I was like, I think, I think this is a book and I think I want to write it. Yeah. What's so unique about him, what you touched on here is he is one of the only people I can think of in public life at the moment that has what I would actually refer to as mystique, where you actually do wonder what's on his mind. And that's so rare, particularly in the social media age where there's oversharing and you know, a lot of confessional sort of communications. So I was really curious, the, the burning question all puns intended, was has he read it and what does he think about it? 
Um, I did send him an early copy, but he's not one to respond to those things. So, Oh, so there's sort of a private component to his personality. Yes. And so I, I would feel, I personally would feel, look, I, you can read it and look, I wrote the book to be what is an accurate portrayal. And I think you both have read it and you can, I think you can agree. Part of my kind of thesis is the weaknesses are some strengths. And I do go into some weaknesses. Like it's not, I think you'll both agree. It's not like a hagiography I wrote of him. At the, same, not at, all. at the same time, I do really love the guy, right? And I would feel like if I wrote a book and didn't share it with him, that would be a real betrayal. So I did send an early draft in. Right. So it's, it, it's a holistic. It, it covers uh, what you perceive as the good and the bad in service of history. And uh, what, something I'm so curious about, and I know you go in this direction in it, is when you have those moments where he's a pain and, you know, he's under your skin, you know, because he's only human and, the, like, you're, you're, you're uh, disagreeing as to certain things. Does that in any way encroach upon your faith in the cause when you're out there on the trail and it's a hard uphill battle? Do you think, oh, no, do you have, do you have um, this is all for nothing sort of moments? No, because the difference is, like, you believe in the cause so strongly, you're just uh, worried about the cause. And I, I think you're referring to... There are several moments where I, I talk about, you know, disagreements with him, both small and large. You know, I, I talk about the book opens with his heart attack, where I was, you know, one of a few people, one of two people with him in the car as this scene is progressing. But, you know, in the moments before we got to the event where he had the heart attack, him and I got into a fight at a Starbucks about scheduling. Right. Um he wanted to cancel a bunch of events the next day. And I just didn't think it was possible and was fighting with him about this. Um, there, which by the way, should have been a sign that something was very wrong at the time because it wasn't the type of events he'd want to cancel looking back. Um, there's the scene that I think a lot of people see this in, in South Carolina during Jim Clyburn's world famous fish fry, which is a big political event. In fact, it was the first time all the candidates were in one room together where Jim Clyburn's staff wanted every candidate to put on a Jim Clyburn t-shirt and Bernie put it on, took it off and wouldn't do it. And Jim Clyburn staff is like looking like they want to murder me because my candidate won't put on the t-shirt and I'm the only staff member there. And, you know, I kind of, you have these moments with Bernie where you're like, dear God, why can't my candidate be normal sometimes? Right. But then you realize in those moments also in that moment, you know, thinking back, like when I think back on that moment, I'm like, that's why I love him because he's right. You have 20 people in a room. One of those people is likely going to be the most powerful person in the world, an awe kind of inspiring position. And what do you want that you want them to wear a t-shirt that doesn't fit to like march out on stage and give a speech while basically wearing a costume? Like, how is that appropriate to the moment? And I think that's how Bernie felt. Like, you're going to make me dress up in an ugly T-shirt. This is about something bigger. This is about, you know, me. This is about me and these other candidates talking about what we believe in to an audience of people who will vote for it. We have to wear a co- Like, wearing a costume is demeaning to the office. And he's right. Mm. The, um, the component in terms of whether or not the campaign was successful, you say early on that this is not a book about even though we lost, we won. It's not that sort of message. I'm so curious in terms of getting inside Bernie Sanders' head, how important was it to him relative to winning? 
How important was it to him that his messaging became so influential in the overall conversation in this country? Does, does he take that as some version of a win? He takes that as something he's happy about. But, you know, he wanted to win. You know, in the mm-hmm. very first interview of the campaign, he stood up and was asked by was asked, you know, why is this campaign different than 2016? And he turned and said, because I'm going to win. Right. He wanted to win. There's this mistake that like Bernie's OK because. He just, you know, because he has a lot of influence. No, no, he wanted to win, and he was not happy about not winning. And when he saw in February, when it felt like, wow, this this is possible, he legitimately got to a place where he was thinking about possibly being president of the United States, which is, you know, as he said, and, and I quote in the book, his parents would think he was crazy if he told them they both died when he was young, you know, they would think he was crazy if he said, I'm going to be a senator, much less somebody who is a really viable candidate for president of the United States. It was a really strange moment for him. And he wanted to win. And he believed because he knows and there is an ultimate fact the Bernie has moved the conversation. He has changed how our country thinks about so many policy issues. He has moved the Democratic Party in particular more in his direction. He's opened up the Overton window of the possibility of policies. But the only way you get a you get the change that he envisions in this country is really a candidate like him winning the presidency. You had a lot of moments along the way where it looked as though it was, as you just said, it, it was in your hands. I mean, so you spoke about when a campaign ends, it's sort of like the world is ending. And then in this case, the actual world was very unstable. How long emotionally does it take to recover from a loss like that? Uh, I don't know. Ask me in a few years, maybe. Yeah, it, um, yeah, so it's still, it's still I mean, I, I don't know if – I don't it, – it varies to the person, I think. I'm going to be honest. I think the younger you are, the, the harder it is sometimes. When you're on your first campaign, it's very different than your 20th campaign. I think this one was particularly hard because of what it meant to have uh, – what Bernie meant to so many of us and the policies he believed in meant – I also think it was hard because of what was going on in the world because of COVID. I also think it was hard because Bernie kind of ingrained in those closest to him how important it was to beat Donald Trump. And Bernie can be very unsentimental, like, okay, we got to do our next thing. Let's go fight Donald Trump, right? But I don't think all of us have that in us. And I think he, you know, I don't know how long he's sat with it. I think a lot of us, you know, still sit with it in a lot of ways. But, you know, what what could it have been like had we won? Um, but, you know, you, at a certain point, you have to you have to pick it up. And he would say, you know, go fight the next battle. Whereabouts did you meet Bernie Sanders? How was that? How was that the first? Where was the first time you get you met him? Okay, so I interviewed him a few times when I had a radio show before I, I met him. Um, so I, I had some contact with him. I wrote two profiles of him, one for the American Prospect, one for the New York Observer over the years. But I, And then I, the, the time I met him in person physically first was actually at a White House correspondence dinner. I met him and got a selfie with him early on. I was, I was one of those people. And uh, when, after 2016, in terms of this context, I – Decided I wanted to leave radio and really get back into politics. I decided with Donald Trump being elected, I wanted to re- kind of dedicate myself to actually 
working in politics. And I talked to my old boss, Harry Reid. I talked to Faz Shakir, uh, who eventually became Bernie's campaign manager. Both of them said, you should really consider working for Bernie. It's like, I don't know Bernie. Uh, Faz set up a meeting. I ended up spending a few hours with him in December 2016. And then we had another meeting actually the very next day for a few hours, um, which I describe in the book. The, the second meeting, I get a call. Uh, can you come to the office? And uh, you know, I'm going to reveal a radio secret. Sometimes we all don't, we didn't dress the best on air. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was not dressed appropriately uh, for uh, a meeting with a senator, which, you know, he's Bernie, but he's still a senator. And across the street from my office in D.C., there's this a discount suit store, one of those buy one, get two free suit stores. <laughs> and I couldn't get home. So I ran to the suit store and spent like 150 bucks on a suit, which meant I had three suits. Um, and like walked to his office with like two bags of suits in them because I was that guy basically. And I like walked in and the front desk, uh, the woman at the front desk who eventually became, um, who worked very closely for me, uh, and became almost an assistant at a certain point. Um, she looked at me like I was literally crazy. Um, like a bag person coming into the office and, uh, and I was like, no, I'm, she's like, what, what, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm here to see uh, the senator. Like, sure, you're here to see with the senator, Mr. Mr. Guy with shopping bags. Why don't you sit over there? So I'm like sitting there and Bernie pokes his head. I was like, Ari, what, what, why aren't you in the meeting? Okay, um, what meeting? And I literally go into the office. I had met him the day before. I go into this conference room that's right next to his reception area. And he's holding a senior staff meeting in the conference room. And he just kind of throws me into his senior staff meeting. And like, just treats like, and by the way, everyone else in me, I know like two of the people in there because we had, we had relationships from before and we're friends of mine, but there are like 10 people in the room, eight of whom have no idea who I am. Right. And yeah. he just like throws me and he's like, so what do you think about uh, what this person said already? Do you think they're smart? And I was like, oh my God. Right. Like <laughs> nice, nice setup, Senator. Um, and then afterwards we had a continuing conversation about, about what, you know, about, about the job. And then a few weeks later, he called and offered me a position and I decided to do it. One of the things that um, Bernie is, is really known for or thought of is about how real he is. Like you get what you see, right? Like he is very, very much who he is, you know, there's no, and, and, and when he talked with Cardi B, you know, that was a big uh, interview and stuff like that. It was very, very real. But at the same time, that realism and about how he just threw you in out of the blue in his staff meeting and stuff, um, that kind of behavior, in a sense, there's there's a lot of Americans that want a polished look, a polished, um, you know, that that kind of almost robot sort of behavior. And so, so in a way, that kind of works against him, too. That's kind of a hard fight for someone like you. Uh, well, I think there are two sides to it. And I think he did a very good job. And I, I will compliment him on this. I think, and people saw this, he did a very good job in 2020 keeping himself real, but also, you know, being a little bit more presidential at times, maintaining that image. And I, I talk about that in the book. But he's also Bernie. He's not going to change who he is. And I think, yeah, there is a divide. Do you want like a president robot automaton from the planet Geektron or do you want um, 
or do you want someone real? And I feel like, by the way, I feel like the truth is the 2020 election, Democratic voters, inauthentic, for Democratic voters, inauthenticity was a kryptonite. And that's why you saw in the end the two kind of very different policy-wise, but the two most authentic guys end up on top, right? Two, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, both of whom are who they are, and they're going to just tell you who they are, and they don't really care, right? Joe is Scranton Joe, and he's going to say some stuff where you're like, that's a little bit weird. But that's who he is, and I think voters do crave that. They want to know politicians mean what they say, and they're not BSing you. So how, how did he deal with kind of the fame part? I know you mentioned in the book about he's the most famous person in the world, like Mick Jagger, that sort of thing, that little ha-ha sort of thing. Did you notice a change in him, or was he having a struggle with that kind of popularity? It was a struggle, actually. And, it, and the struggle was it was just absolutely – I mean, imagine any of us. We go through our lives. For 40 years, he's just kind of a normal person. Then he's mayor of Burlington, which – look, is a prominent position in Burlington, but Burlington is tiny, right? Like Burlington, which is the biggest city in Vermont, is only 40,000 people. So you're talking still about a tiny, tiny city, right? There are, what, how many people are in, are in Seattle? Like, Oh, three million now. So it's like uh, neighborhoods in Seattle are bigger than Burlington, yeah. Vermont, right? <laughs> um, so you're talking about, he's mayor, but it's like, mayor of a block in Seattle, right? Yeah. Um, and then he's a congressman and a senator. And like on the left, people certainly knew him. He was kind of a guy. People like people knew there was this socialist in, in Congress and they knew on the left that there was this guy, Bernie, but it was kind of a cult following um, that he had. Uh, and, then, and then come 2015, he literally becomes one of the most famous people in the world. And so famous, in fact, that um, one of the things we had on the campaign was if you were on the advanced staff or somebody who, you know, we thought needed access to things at rallies, we had a pin that was would identify people. And the pin was an outline of Bernie Sanders head with glasses, just the uh, kind of an outline look of it and the glasses. And that's enough where. When I've worn that pin anywhere in the world, people know it's Bernie. It's not even his face. It's just an outline of his hair and his glasses. And so he's become an icon. It's, it's you know, when you're, when you're enough that you're, the outline of your head is, is like a Coke bottle logo or the Michael Jordan. Like, think about, like, things that are that iconic. And he is that widely known. And in a lot of ways, that's, you know, that's a trick, right? When you're, you go through seven decades of not anonymity for the last three, but not prominence. And... And then in the final decade, you have that much prominence. It's, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, he, he would have a sense of humor about it. I do tell the story in the book. I do tell a few instances in the book. One of my favorites is we're driving in front of the um, Capitol building, and there's a, the light turns red, and he's, the car stops, and he's in the front passenger seat. I'm in the back seat, and there's a high school-like tour of the Capitol, you know, that goes on in there. The high school kids are waiting in the corner, and suddenly one of them sees that Bernie Sanders is sitting in the car, right? And they start screaming like you see the films in the 1960s, like the Beatles have landed in Washington. Oh, my God, Bernie Sanders! Oh! He, like, rolls down the window. They're taking selfies with him. The light changes, like, guys, guys, got to go. Rolls up the window. We pull off. 
He turns around to me in the back seat and he goes, I'm like Mick Jagger. <laughs> I like your impersonation. It's really good. You know, travel I guess with you're... him enough, you kind of fall into it at a certain point. You took the words right out of my mouth, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you brought up the S word a couple minutes ago, socialism. I'm so curious uh, how that factored into the uh, communications component of the, of the campaign. Of course, Bernie is a democratic socialist, but uh, what was it like dealing with that word and people's reaction to it on the positive or negative side? Yeah, you know, America isn't used to that. In fact, weirdly, one of the profiles I wrote of him, the one for the New York Observer, was about Bernie's use of socialist is not, his political context is much more uh, Roosevelt and not mm -hmm. even Franklin, but Theodore Roosevelt, 1912, when he founded the Progressive Bull Moose Party, than it is like some European far off concept. It's a very, like his, and if you took two places he kind of draws from, it is, you know, Roosevelt 1912, and I don't even know if he recognizes this as much. And then Franklin Roosevelt 1944, when he uh, gives a speech about the second Bill of Rights. Really the two places that, you know, kind of foundational parts of Bernie's political philosophy um, that he draws from. But how do you deal with it in a, in, a, in a country where very often that word has negative connotations, especially, let's be clear, with older voters, where Bernie had an electoral problem, I think a lot having to do with that word. Younger voters don't as much care. Older voters, you know, come out of the Cold War and have some negative connotation there. And, you know, and, and the fact, first off, he's a democratic socialist, which is very different than like other contexts. But, you know, you still lose it. You still have a, a problem at points. And, you know, we would talk about what it is. We would talk. He gave a he gave a speech that was very well received over the summer about what what socialism means to him, how it's basically a quest for freedom and and the idea that you can be free from the things that that hold you back in life. And he wants a government that works for people. And I think when you break it down on issues like issue after issue after issue, generally, the public agrees with him. Generally, the public doesn't think that you should die because you don't have health care. Generally, the public doesn't think kids should go into debt for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to attend school. Generally, the public doesn't think that pharmaceutical companies should be allowed to price gouge consumers while taking money from the federal government to develop their drugs. You know, you go down issue after issue after issue, people agree with him. And I think that was one of the challenges on the campaign was to was to talk about those issues while dealing like there was a you know, there was a debate before he ran among advisors about should he just declare himself a Democrat. And he would never do that because, you know, the thing about Bernie that people love is the Bernie in 1990, is the Bernie in 2000, is the Bernie in 2010. In fact, there's an ad, one of my favorite ads of the campaign. It's still, it's on the Bernie YouTube channel. People, people can watch it. It's, you know, it's him talking about issues and the screen moves between all four decades of his career. And it just seems like a solid speech. And then the tag is Bernie Sanders always fighting for us. But you can just see you see speeches from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, all the way up to 2020. And, you know, you can do a, the speech is the same. Why specifically do you think it connected with young people? 
Uh, a few reasons. I think he would say it's because young people have a very good BS detector and he doesn't, he doesn't have that bone in his body, right? He can't, he can't BS around. He just, he can't do it. If he tries, it's a complete mess, to be honest. And I think young voters, he, th he would say young voters connect with that. I think, I, I put it to something else also. I think after he had the heart attack, we did this rally uh, in Queensbridge Park with AOC in New York, and 26,000 people showed up. It was the biggest, it was literally the biggest rally of the campaign cycle, I think, overall. And um, at, he, at the end of his speech there, he turns to the audience and he said, take a look around. Like, are you willing to fight for the person you don't know? And if you look at what Bernie's politics are about, it's about that. But who is the person, you know, quote unquote, he doesn't know? If you think about the things he's fighting for, they don't impact his life at all, right? He's fighting for Medicare for all, for everyone to have health care. But Bernie has Medicare and he has his health plan as a member of Congress. He's never going to go without health care a day in his life, but he's fighting for you to have health care. Um, Bernie, when Bernie went to college, when he went to Brooklyn College and then University of Chicago, it was uh, you know, it was nearly free and, and not that expensive. Like you could, you could afford to go to college and, and you didn't have taken massive quantities of debt. He's fighting for students to go to college tuition free, even though it will never affect his life. He is fighting uh, on the issue of climate change. Even look, I hope he lives for a hundred thousand years, right? But in all likelihood, we are experiencing climate change now, but the worst effects will come in the decades to come. And he is fighting so young people don't have to experience that because we, we take steps. His whole political philosophy is fighting for young people in this country and, and the things that they need. And I think people saw that and gravitated to it. How do you feel about how things are going with um, Joe Biden? That's an interesting question. Um, look, I think... I think that the, the head that wears the crown is very, very heavy, right? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, I think that you have a Senate that is, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are never going to be compliant. And but at the same time, it's his job to overcome that and produce change. It's his job to convince the American people that he's doing a good job. I think it is, you know, we are in very trying times and a lot of things presidents get blamed for are not their fault. Right. They 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 seemingly are the most powerful person in the world, but they don't control everything. And look, there are things he's done that I think are really, really great and really, really brave. I think, you know, he's received a lot of criticism for his withdrawal from Afghanistan. But in the end, I think that was a brave decision and the right one. We had been fighting that war. And Bernie would agree, by the way, we had been fighting that war for two decades. It was going nowhere. We were losing troops. There was, you know, it was time to bring people home and basically say we can't we can't sustain this forever. And it was a brave decision. I think they knew they would get criticized for on other things. I think, look, I think there's more we can do about climate change, even with executive orders. There's more we could do about prescription drug prices, even with executive orders. There's more we could do about um, college costs, especially with executive orders. And like, but I'm always going to be one who asks for more. Actually, once I, I, I talk about this a little in the book. About on a different topic, I was having I had a conversation with uh, conservative activist Grover Norquist once, and this isn't in the book this particular thing. But one of the things I asked him was Grover Norquist. His whole life has been advocating for tax cuts. That's all he advocates for. And I said, how much? What's the amount of tax cuts that you want? Where you'll walk away and be like, I won. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I've gotten the exact amount of taxes that I want. And he said more. Like if you give me. A 50% tax cut, I want a 75% tax cut, right? The answer is always going to be more. And I I take that philosophy to heart, actually, right? The answer for me is always going to be more. So I will always be um, critical of those with power. And I think it's actually incumbent on citizens to be critical of those in power. Among the generation of politicians that's younger, you mentioned AOC. Who is, now that Bernie is getting older, he's almost 80 Who's holding the torch in terms of the sort of things he would like to see? There are, there are lots of people I think he would cite. I think AOC being one of them. I think, um, and by the way, I will list some people. It doesn't mean he agrees with them on everything. Um, certainly he will disagree with some on some major issues. But I think in Congress, you have people like AOC, um, uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ro Khanna, um, Pramila Jaipal, people 
running for Congress right now, like uh, Nina Turner in Ohio, uh, certainly would be within his eyes as somebody who really embraces the political revolution as he sees it. When you wrote this book, was there a subtext or some sort of underlying theme that you hope people get out of it? Um, well, first, the thing I hope they take from it is, you know, The Fighting Soul is a meaningful title, not just because it's about, it's not just his fight with, you know, the Democratic establishment. It's not just the fight for the presidency. You know, I also feel you both have read the book. It's somewhat about the fight with himself that he has. And I think those struggles and the fact that he has spent his life in those struggles is what makes Bernie Bernie. And that's, I want people to understand that struggle a little bit. Are you talking specifically about the financial struggles he had growing up and the shame that came with that? Or tell, tell us more about yeah, that. Yeah, like, like what, look, I, I somewhat about that, where um, he is very hesitant to talk about his parents. And I dig a little bit into that in the book. I, I also go through a scene where, you know, he's being interviewed by a progressive activist, actually, who he genuinely likes. And the progressive activist, uh, Adi Barkin, who's a healthcare activist who's confined to a wheelchair and has to speak through a computer because of ALS, um, asks him about his parents. And he couldn't, he, he cut the interview short at a certain point because he said, I don't want to talk about that. It's, it is still clearly something painful. And that, but it's also the fight with himself where I think where is he doing enough? Is he is he fighting enough? Is he fighting the right way? There is a real struggle there. And I think that struggle is part of what makes him who he is. Do you think that struggle supersedes with him? This is something I always wonder about when I see him speaking and in action. Is there more of that sense of a fight and struggle than there is a sense of pride of achievement? This goes back to what you were saying a moment ago about what I, he's wanting I, I think more. there is a sense of pride deep down, but he's also somebody who's like, what's next, right? What have you done yeah. for me? Great, we uh, did that. Now now let's move on to the next thing. Like, it's kind of also why I end the book, um, I end the book before the epilogue, which has uh, a story that's gotten attention about him and Obama, but kind of the last, the last chapter prior to the epilogue ends with him and I walking through the tunnels under the Capitol after passing the first reconciliation bill. And he put his arm around me saying, that was fun, wasn't it? Right. Because um, he passed this one, the, one of the largest uh, bills in the history of our country, a one point seven tr trillion dollar reconciliation package. Um, he does look and he had a re has a real sense of pride about what he's accomplished. Right. But he's also always going to be what what's next? What what do we need to do to improve people's lives further is always going to be on his mind. What about the work life balance? Is this a person I know there's an element of privacy and, uh, you know, he has four children, he has a long marriage. Do you think this is a person that manages to spend a lot of time with his family? Yeah, look, his family is very important to him. He does, look, he does take time with them. He, he, his, his grandkids, the one thing I've seen give him, like, the most pure sense of joy is when he's with his grandchildren. Um, his backyard in Burlington is strewn with athletic equipment, um, basketballs, soccer balls, a, a pitch back for like throwing baseballs around, baseball bats, right? He's somebody who loves going out and playing basketball with his grandkids. 
Um, somebody who is slightly competitive about athletics, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I tell that a story in the book about uh, J.D. Schlotten, who's a congressman, uh, who was a congressional candidate, I should say. He lost in Ohio, in Iowa, uh, but was a professional athlete, a professional baseball player in the minor leagues at one point, but still a professional athlete. They wanted to film a video of him and Bernie playing horse together. And mm -hmm. J.D. Schlotten, who is... Uh, I think it was 50 years his junior at that point around at 45 years his junior at least. And him, he's actually keeping up with him pretty well, but JD Schlotten mm -hmm. wins the game of horse and Bernie was a bit upset. And I'm like, dude, he's a professional athlete. Who's four decades younger than you. Like, <laughs> I think, I think people <laughs> will understand that he beat you in a game of horse where you were competitive and hitting shots, by the way. <laughs> if he's competitive as an athlete, it would stand to reason he's a competitive politician. Is that accurate? Yeah, and by the way, that's something I think people don't realize. Like, I was talking to somebody, I was at a book event um, at a store where Bernie has done book events, and they were like, what the owner of the store said to me, you know, it always shocks me that he's really tall and athletic. I was like, people are kind of shocked when they meet him that he's a really tall guy, actually, well over yeah, because he looks really short. I actually, this is, uh, yeah, it's just clicking. I'm looking at the book cover now, and I can see it. But he does, he, he tends to read short for some reason. He reads short, but he's over six feet, and he's very athletic. Like, he'll go out and play. He loves shooting around baskets. Like, he loves being in the backyard, taking swings of the baseball bat. You know, Faz Shakir, our campaign manager, was a D1 college baseball player, and he would, like, have Faz pitch to him, right? It's like, you know, he, he's so a guy who likes that. When you're out on the trail, so, you know, first of all, he's dealing within the Democratic Party and his uh, opponents there. And then there's the issue of Trump, as you talked about. Does he have that fire in his belly? Like, we have to bury this mf or Does it get oh, like yeah, that? Oh, he, yeah, he yeah. – and it was more – it wasn't even personal hatred with Trump, though he does personally find Trump to be utterly repulsive. Um, it's yeah. – he felt like the thing he was most nervous about with Trump – is he really feels and continues to feel, by the way, that Trump is a risk to democracy. And the mm -hmm. thing about Bernie is when you say democratic socialist, the democratic comes first. And the thing he is most concerned about is democracy and people having a voice. And he is very concerned that the that Trump, he was very concerned that Trump's reelection. And I'm certain I'm not speaking out of turn by saying he would be concerned with if Trump ran again, that because Trump doesn't respect democratic institutions and democratic norms, that his uh, election again would be a real threat to American democracy. And that's what it's not. It's not even that he doesn't like he finds Trump personally distasteful, which he does, by the way. It's that he thinks mm. Trump is a threat to democracy. Stay with that for a moment, because uh, a few minutes ago, you did a wonderful job. I was going to ask you, but you already did it. You uh, listed a lot of the policy points, the things Bernie cares about. On the opposite tip, in the inverse, tell us about the threats coming from the Republican Party and the, uh, you know, in addition to what you just explained about democracy, what are the things that are points of concern in terms of fighting the fight you fight? Right. Well, in the fall of 2020, Bernie was very, very concerned about Trump questioning the election. And actually, some Democrats kind of complained about him um, taking those concerns very public, saying he's going to use these elements to question democracy. He kind of predicted a lot of what led up to January 6th. And his point was, you have to say these things publicly or they become or they sneak up on you. And, and to their credit, the Biden campaign 
And the leadership there was not like Democrats would somewhat complain about it, but they were very much they they did not complain about Bernie doing this and talking about these issues. He's concerned like he's concerned about people, the right to vote as a fundamental right in this country and that people have access to the ballot and that votes are counted and counted properly. And he was he was worried that Trump and Republican and certain Republicans, not all Republicans, but certain Republicans would interfere in that process. And I think he was, you know, history and what's on audio tapes and in in uh, legal records prove that was a real concern. He is concerned about um, he's concerned about the way in which we manage elections in general in this country to make sure they're free and fair and that um, that the right to vote is upheld. So that, that's the main concern. It's the erosion of democratic norms. Yes. A sort of lawlessness. A, a lawlessness, a sense of a sense that, you know, not respecting results of elections, not respecting the idea that you would have like these phony elector controversies, the idea that you would use because we had this all these new mail-in votes, that you would use that to try to detract from uh, people's legally cast votes, et cetera. So he wasn't so much on, and this is going to lead to another question that will be obvious in a moment. Uh, he wasn't so much on Trump um, sort of fanning the flames of white supremacy. Oh, no, he was in- he was on that, too. That's a we went. We were at Democratic norms. If you want to know other things he was upset about with Trump, he's very much uh, upset about Trump's bigotry and fanning the flames of white supremacy. And he, he spoke about that on a number of occasions. Um, I was just talking about in terms of Democratic norms, but we can go through the things oh, he was upset about with Trump. He was upset about the, right. the concept of white of fanning the fanning the flames of white nationalism, fanning the flames of white supremacy, the racism from his supporters. Look, our campaign mm-hmm. and people, this moment has slipped into the past. But you know, when you had you had people uh, at one campaign rally trying to put up swastikas behind Bernie, like it. Yeah. You know, he saw this personally, and to him, um, the the Holocaust isn't academic, right? He's somebody whose family was decimated in the Holocaust. So when he sees na- white nationalism, white supremacy, when he sees uh, the violence stemming from bigotry, it is a very personal thing. And when he sees racial violence stemming from bigotry and religious-based violence stemming from bigotry, it, it all relates to the experience that his family had, uh, which ultimately cost most of them their lives. How do you feel? This was the follow-up question I just mentioned a moment ago. Like, uh, Bernie seemed to me, in my perception, to always have an appeal to the working class in a way that a lot of people, as far to the left of him, it's eluded them. And what do you think that, what do you think set him apart in that regard, in terms of his messaging, his communication, his priorities? Uh, I think respect for people, to be honest. Kind of the same, where, where he was generally willing to listen and talk to people where they were. And it, it, you know, and working class, I think people mistake that to mean white working class, but you look at our campaign and there are a bunch of videos uh, our campaign made, which are really spectacular um, stories from the road. And, you know, to him that they cover this, that the working class didn't only mean the auto worker in Lordstown, Ohio, who lost their job. Right. Who is featured in this video, but also the woman in in uh, Loudest County, Alabama, 
who lives next to, who he went to her house, which was next to a sewage pond and they cried together and he toured her dilapidated trailer. And, you know, that, that who, the person who worked every day in their life to upkeep this dilapidated trailer, um, that was to him that those struggles, those struggles are connected. And he saw it as a connected struggle that, that, that the, the class struggles and racial struggle struggles against economic issues and struggles uh, about racism are, are well interlinked and most work and people forget most working class people in this country are people of color. And that's something very much at the top of Bernie's mind. And by the way, the, the sad epilogue to the story about the woman that we, that he visited in Alabama, who you can go watch the video of it's on YouTube on Bernie's YouTube page still, uh, she died of COVID mm. is the kind of epilogue there, which is a really sad epilogue. And, and the truth about what people faced in this country. What do you think the biggest misconception of Bernie Sanders is? What do you think the public gets wrong the most? Um, a few things. One, like there's some political stuff I think people get wrong. Uh, like the idea that when he says working class, he's not he's literally that means everybody. I think people make that mistake all the time. Um, but I think uh, also there's a lot like they they miss the joy in his in, in that's in him. They miss they miss the Bernie that, you know, they don't see the Bernie that I saw that the bookend to the first story I told, which was him dancing to the coasters, Charlie Brown song in the uh, in the green room of the debate was the last day of campaigning before COVID shut everything down. March 10th, we were in Detroit again, actually. And uh, we were supposed to go to Ohio for a rally. And we kind of took a pause because we didn't know whether we sh- we were like, should we do this rally with COVID increasing? Like that was a very real question. Right. And there were questions about what is states were shutting down events. We didn't know we were going back and forth. Should we do this? Um, we have staff all around the country. Should we tell them to go home? Like, should they leave their offices and go home? So we kind of had this pause for two hours while things kind of, while things start to get sorted out. And he went to the, um, we, we ended up going to the Motown Museum. And he, as he walks in, he knows, like he knew every artist, he knew everything. He's talking about how these records were made and kind of the final scene of the campaign in my mind, even though the campaign wouldn't end for basically another month but it was the final, one of the final public moments in my mind, even though it was only like four of us in there. We were in the original Motown recording studio that is at, because the Motown Museum is the townhouse where Motown Records was in Detroit. And the original recording studio is there. And he's in there with the tour guide singing My Girl in the original recording studio. <laughs> and just a pure look of happiness on his face. And if you have a copy of the hardcover where you are. It's the first picture and kind of the photo pullout is him in yeah. the Motown recording studio. And you can see just that giant smile on his face. Like, and, and it was the only time in the, I always had a camera with me. It was the only time in the campaign where he said, uh, Ari, could you, could you please take a picture of me? Uh, and like that, that, that's a side of him that I don't think many people see. They don't see him with his grandkids. They don't see him in the person. They also don't see him as somebody who's like sitting there who loves Motown, who that's the music of his youth. Um, you know, one other thing that 
is somewhat known, but I think is a good is 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 some of his some of the origin of his political beliefs. This is always a good one. Uh, is baseball, and one of a, a great moment in the book is uh, I ended up taking him to Dodger spring training in 2018, and first off, he was wearing a Brooklyn Dodger hat because and when they when they gave him an LA Dodger hat, he said, "Nope, I'm going to keep the Brooklyn one on." And he told the uh, he told the old uh, Walter O'Malley joke that was in Brooklyn when he grew up, which is, you know, the three worst people in the world are Hitler, Stalin and Walter O'Malley, not necessarily in that order. Um, <laughs> um, but but truthfully, where that relates to his political ideologies, you know, Brooklyn Dodgers were the team of his youth. He can still he can still go through the lineups. Right. Um, that was the thing he most cared about as a child. And when he's in high school, the team moves to LA. And for him, it was like, it would be the equivalent of saying you took Prospect Park out of Brooklyn and you moved it to Los Angeles. How do you take a, how does a rich person take a community institution and move it across the country? And it was kind of his first uh, conception of wealth being more powerful than community, which is something that I think has driven him since. Do you ever look back and kind of think, wow, and has this time with Bernie actually changed some of your viewpoints or your... I mean, it, it, it certainly changed me. I mean, it, it's interesting. This is my fourth book I've written, and the first three were more dense uh, nonfiction books. Uh, now, this is nonfiction, but as you said, it reads more like a narrative story, right, with Bernie as the central character in it. So it was a very different, much more emotional book, and... You know, I recognize the impact the campaign had on me, the impact of how I see people in our country. You know, I really got to see America with Bernie, right? I've been in 35 states with him. I, I went to a powwow in Oklahoma where the chief of the tribe kind of gave me a hug and told me to take care of Bernie because he was their only hope. I saw, I saw people with some of just major issues in their lives really looking to Bernie and the policies that he believed in as a lifeline. And the, the, the fact that politics, we, we, there's a tendency, especially among national political reporters, to treat politics as a sporting match, to treat it as like, there's the blue team and the red team, and the blue team's up at bat, and did they score a run? Like, r- reporters would constantly say things like, well, they really put points on the board. This is political reporters, and they'd say that to me, And I think what Bernie taught me was that level of cynicism is hugely damaging to America. And it wasn't that I didn't know that before, but the people we met, the people we interacted with, we got to see that up close. And it really, it now, when I see that cynicism in reporters and political operatives, it really uh, disgusts me. Hmm. This, you know, this book, you took the words right out of my mouth. The compliment I was going to pay you is that I find it very emotional and you have me in tears at different points. And because you have such emotional insight and psychological insight, I'm going to ask you uh, uh, to speak to a paradox of Bernie that I'm realizing as we're speaking, not a contradiction necessarily, but he sounds like with the sports background that there's this competitive streak, but he is also not like a rah-rah cheerleader of capitalism necessarily, so how do you account for that? Do you have a comment as to that? Um, well, he's definitely not a rah-rah cheerleader of capitalism. But look, I think he looks – sports were something that I think were a really important part of his childhood. He also views sports and music 
as something uh, that drives community. So at every uh, rally, we did 300 rallies in the course of this campaign, about 300. And at about probably 250 of them, I should look, I have a spreadsheet that has all these details on it that we kept during the campaign because we needed the information. Um, and at probably about 250, there was a musical act. And that was because Bernie, and you know, at some events there were giant musical acts, right? Um, and which meant like, you know, the strokes in, in New Hampshire was like, you know, giant musical act. But for Bernie, the local band was just as important. And a lot of times, you know, we're talking a, a five to 700 people with, in a small town with a local honky-tonk band or in Kentucky with a bluegrass band or once in Milwaukee with a reggae band. Like that's what he, he saw the musical part of rallies as community trip, as, as the community. Uh, as a way to bring community and to create community at a political event. It's why in the book I talk about the fight that Bernie had with a baseball commissioner, Manfred, in his office over minor league baseball. And Bernie looks at minor league baseball. He brought, as mayor, he brought a minor league team to Burlington, the Burlington Reds, which eventually became the Lake Monsters, which, by the way, is a great hat if people want the, with their mascot champ, the Lake Monster. Um <laughs> Uh, but that's to him, minor league baseball is something that really drives community because you don't have to be wealthy. You can, you can, for 15 bucks, you can bring your family, you can bring the kids out to a ball game on a Friday night and they can have a hot dog and they can meet these baseball players, one of whom might become a major leaguer at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it, 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 to him, that's what sports and music are about. They're about community and the fact that they have become commercialized is the downside. Um, Got it. And it's a beautiful uh, sentiment you're sharing and listening to it. I'm also realizing there's a, a huge tie between this sense of community and peace. You know, it's a peace, the peacemaking activities, music and sports. Well, yeah. And by the way, that's, that's part of his foreign policy philosophy that people don't recognize is um, there's, that there's that weird attack on him. Bernie had his honeymoon in Russia. Well, that, that's not mm -hmm. actually true what happened was he was mayor and after his wedding he and jane and a delegation from burlington went to a soviet city that was burlington's that was part of a sister city program that actually was encouraged by ronald reagan you know great great communist ronald reagan um <laughs> encouraged to improve relations between our peoples to have sister city programs where delegations from one city would visit the other school kids would do exchange programs to do these sister city programs with Soviet cities and South American cities. And Bernie would institute those programs in Burlington, not because he wanted to meet with the government of Russia, but because he thought the people of the two countries can interact and, and, and part of, and build community throughout the world with each other. And then we could solve the bigger issues, but let's, let's form a community with each other. Ari, I want to tell you, Al mailed me your book before we had you on. It's a hardcover. I received it. I said to myself, what is Al doing to me? I'm gonna, he expects me to read this. And then I could not put it down. <laughs> could not put it down. Very emotional. You should be very proud. It's a uh, contribution to history. I want to also make clear, you said it's number four. I have here that you did Lies Incorporated, yeah. the world of post-truth politics. You did The Fox Effect about Roger Ailes and Fox Propaganda. What is the one we're missing? Uh, I did a small kind of... Amazon ebook uh, at one point called the Benghazi hoax about the Benghazi okay. thing. Got it. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I can't emphasize it enough to our listeners that this is a must-read. Yeah, I, and look, I, I hope if you don't like Bernie, I still think there's something here for you. Like, I think you don't have to like Bernie. Like, I think if you want, uh, if you want to know what it's like to be at the top level of a presidential campaign, I try to take you inside of that. And look, I I spend a lot of time reading conservative literature, actually, mm-hmm. and I think, likewise. And I think it's important that we read things that we don't necessarily agree with. And maybe it's self-serving here, but I also do think, I think if you disagree with Bernie, you can still get something out of understanding where he comes from, which I endeavor to explain in this book. Right. Yeah, it breaks bubbles. And, you know, there is that axis on which certain people were torn between Trump and Bernie. I mean, it gets complicated. Yeah, there's, I mean, look, the national media would like to make politics this ideological continuum where people right. on the left, people on the right. But the truth is, I mean, in the Democratic primary, Bernie Biden voters were much more common than Bernie Warren voters, for example, whereas you would say, oh, no, they're the two left. Bernie and Warren are the lefty right. candidates. That's where the voters know. Bernie Biden voters were much more common. And I think we make this mistake of politics for most people isn't a continuum from left to right. It's an amalgamation of issues and their cultural biases and class consciousness and other things that they form opinions of candidates. And I think Bernie is one of those candidates who can cross over a lot of thresholds with people. Well said. The book we've been talking about tonight is The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders. Our guest is the author, Ari Robinoff. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. 
houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.